just pray before we start. Mm. Our Father, as we turn our minds now to your word, Lord, we pray that you'll teach us from it. And because, Lord, in it are the words of eternal life. Your words, Lord. You're the truth. And we need to feed off of you through the Bible. And Lord, we ask that tonight that <clears throat> you're working us and just give us that little bit more that we need in order to follow you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, um, I'm going to ask and answer a question tonight. Um, it might strike you at first hearing as being a very basic thing, but it's also a tremendously important thing as well. And the question is this, what is the Bible for? What is the Bible for? Now, obviously, there are many ways that one could answer that, because there are many aspects of the Bible's function. <clears throat> I mean, for instance, it tells us about history, uh, it tells us about the future, it tells us about information concerning spiritual warfare, how to be saved, etc, etc, and a thousand things. But what I want uh, to do tonight is, is to define it in a blanket way and then break it down to try and get to the real crux of exactly what it is that the Bible is for and why it is that God has given it to us. <clears throat> now, let me define it like this. The Bible is there to tell us what God is like, to tell us what we are like, and to tell us how we can be changed to become what he likes. Or to put it another way, the Bible tells us about the holiness of God, it tells us about our sinfulness, and it tells us how the transition is made in us from the latter to the former the way in which God works in us <clears throat> so that he can bit by bit deliver us from our own sin and bring us more and more into the holiness of God. And that, at rock bottom, is what the Bible is for. And obviously, the first step, it can't even begin to happen in someone until they get saved. So obviously the first thing that the Bible does, it convicts people of sin, it tells them about Jesus. If it wasn't for the Bible, we wouldn't have heard the Gospel, and we wouldn't be Christians. But once someone has got converted, then the Lord wants to take it further and further, so that that person can be made as he likes. And that is the nub of what the Bible is there for. And all the other aspects, origins, history, the future, it is all there to give us what we need in order for this transition, if you like, from our sinfulness to Jesus' holiness, so that that transition can be made real in our lives. Now, if you go to 2 Timothy, and we'll read the uh, actual passage that we're going to be working from tonight, one, one main passage. <clears throat> and, of course, in asking, what is the Bible for? Uh, in order to get that answer, we look in the Bible. And one of the things that it's important to realise um, is that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God above all else, because the Bible claims to be. Easy. 
not just because it's true, not just because it's persuasive. It is all those things, and of course it is, because it's God's Word. But the most important thing about the Bible is understanding what the Bible claims about itself. So, in 2 Timothy, and find chapter 3, and, um, and I'm going to read from verse 10. As is Paul writing to Timothy, Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings, some testimony, isn't it? Uh, what befell me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. <clears throat> Yet from all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, whilst evil men and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceivers and deceived. <clears throat> but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, basically, we're going to start from verse 14 and go through that verse by verse <clears throat> to pick out exactly what it is that Paul's saying here. Now, first of all, he says, <clears throat> as for you, and remember, Timothy is the leader of a church. He's kind of training up other leaders, but he's there on his tod at this particular time as a leader. And Paul writes, he says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Now then, the point is, Learned from what? Well, in verse 15, he says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now then, for Timothy, Paul is saying here that Timothy has since a child been instructed in the Scriptures. And it's the Old Testament. And that's the first place to begin. The early Christians and Jesus himself acknowledged the Old Testament to be 100% the Word of God. The New Testament has completed it, but the Old Testament is the Word of God as well. And it says here that the Scriptures, and for us this is whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, the Scriptures are there to instruct. To instruct. Now, this word instruct in the Greek is sophitsu. And it, the, the actual Greek word it comes from is sophos, which means wise, or wisdom, wise. But this particular version of it, sophitsu, is only used in one other place in the New Testament apart from here. Now keep your finger in 2 Timothy and go flick over to 2 Peter. We're going to be flicking a lot from Timothy to Peter tonight, <coughs> but find 2 Timothy chapter 1, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to read verse 16. Um, 
Now, I'm not interested particularly at this point in what the verse is saying, but just the use of this Greek word, okay, sofitsu. And in 2 Peter 1 verse 16, he says, For we did not div uh, follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the sofitsu in there is cleverly devised. Clever. That's what the word actually means. It means to make clever. And so, therefore, the scriptures are there to instruct us in what we need to know in order to follow the Lord. They are there to make us clever in our Christian walk. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that everyone is going to be some great brain box. That would be silly. God has endowed varying people with different degrees you know, sort of like of intelligence. I mean, in this fellowship, we range from single-figure to double-figure brain cells, don't we? Uh, now, it's not saying that everyone has got to, you know, kind of be a great brain box, but what it does mean is quite simply this, that everyone who follows the Lord can be clever when it comes to understanding God's Word, if only they are prepared to work at it. So I'll say that again. Being a Christian and reading the Bible, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to go from road sweeper to nuclear physicist. There's, there's, there's no promise of it making you clever in that regard. But regardless of how uh, clever or unclever you are, you can be absolutely sure that the Bible will make you clever when it comes to understanding the Bible itself. It will instruct you. It will make you clever in the things of God. Now, I say that, why? How can I be so sure about that? Well, it's in this word instruct. But keep your finger in 2 Timothy, but now go to John's Gospel. And I want to show you how we can know that this is absolutely certain. And John's Gospel, and find first of all verse 14. Uh, sorry, John's, John's Gospel, chapter 14, and verse 26. <clears throat> and this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. And uh, John 14, verse 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now go over into chapter 16 and find verse 12. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now go over into 1 John, the first letter that John wrote, right up towards the back of the, of the New Testament. The first letter that John wrote, and find chapter 2. And in what Jesus was saying to the disciples there, he was giving them a guarantee. They were not learned men by any means. I mean, you know, someone like Paul the Apostle, he was a brilliantly learned man. Uh, but Peter certainly wasn't. 
James certainly wasn't. And yet here was Jesus telling them that because of the Holy Spirit, they would have no problem whatsoever recalling and grasping the truth of all that Jesus was teaching them. And uh, here in the letter that John wrote, chapter 2 and verse 26, and he says this, I write this to you about those who would deceive you, but the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, in saying that you need no one to teach you, uh, he's not here saying don't go to Bible you know, studies, don't have teachers. But what he's saying is that one's dependency on understanding the Word of God doesn't come from anyone else. It comes from the anointing inside of you. And what is the anointing we have? The Holy Spirit. And so here is John saying uh, that really the Holy Spirit is your own personal Bible teacher within. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and remember I'm saying that regardless of your IQ, or even whether you've got one, the Bible promises us that we can be clever in the things of God, that we can understand them. And 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 to 16, now listen to this because we're going to hit here a sentence that is staggering. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And then he quotes the Old Testament, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. You see that? Jesus is in us. We're one with Jesus. Therefore, we are one with Jesus's mind. And that what you've got here is that when it comes to understanding the Word of God, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not applying this in the slightest, if you decide to be a nuclear physicist, you'd probably be on your own in that, as it were. But when it comes to understanding the Word of God, then part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to give us that understanding and to make up any natural deficiency we may have when it comes to numbers of brain cells. Can you see that? Now some people have more brain cells than other people, or they seem to be able to use more. There may be intellectual, academic, or whatever. So, you know, maybe they would be able to grasp understanding of subjects that other people wouldn't. But, in the Christian life, when it comes to understanding the Bible, we have equality. Because anything you lack in brain cells is made up for by the Holy Spirit, and it's a promise in the Bible. The condition is diligently working at it. It's no use putting no work into it, oh, well, Lord, just teach me. You've got to do the study, but the Holy Spirit will make up any mental deficiency that is there. Or to put it another way, both brain cells plus the Holy Spirit is enough. If you use both your brain cells at the same time and trust the Lord and work hard at it, the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we can just see Paul referring again to this aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 
uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 and find verse 15. And Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Now when Paul talks about, I'm going to pray that you're given a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and revelation, that's the Holy Spirit, because that is what the Holy Spirit has come to do, to take the, the, the truth of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and to enlighten our hearts and our minds with it. That is the ministry that he has, or part of the ministry that he has. And the point is, back to Timothy, we were seeing that Paul wrote to him that it's the scriptures that instruct you. And here's the point. The Holy Spirit fulfills this ministry of giving you understanding of the truth of Jesus and everything. He does that through the scriptures. It is through the Holy Scriptures that the Holy Spirit does this thing that we're talking about. And of course the point is he enables us to understand everything that we need for salvation. And when I say salvation, I mean past, present and future. Um, so the Bible tells us how to get saved. There's the penalty of sin. Um, but from there, it goes on to tell us how we can be saved from the power of sin. And it tells us what's awaiting for us one day when we're set free from the presence of sin. So you've got justification, sanctification, and glorification. Salvation series rerun there. Salvation past, present, and future. And that is what the scriptures are there to do. The Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, will give us progressively, over a period of time, but he will give us all the knowledge all the understanding that we need of our salvation in order for the Lord to do the work in us that he wants to do. Right, okay, then in verse 16, Paul goes on to say, first of all, all scripture is inspired by God. Now, when Paul writes inspired by God, the Greek word there is theonoustos. And it's the only time in the Bible that this word appears. So Paul is telling us something vitally important about the Bible, about the word of God. And he tells us that it is theonoustos. It is inspired by God. Now then, theo, God, and then you get this noustos. The noustos is from the verb neu, which means to breathe. And a literal translation of theonoustos is God breathed. God breathed. So therefore, it's not so much that the Holy that the Bible is inspired. It's not so much that it's inspired as it's expired. Now, what do I mean? As I'm speaking now, I'm exhaling. I'm breathing out. 
you can't talk without breathing out. You can't talk and breathe in at the same time. It's not possible. So if you like, I'm expiring, all right? So the whole point is that in this Theonustus, what you've got is that it is literally, it's God-breathed, it is God-spoken. That is the true meaning of the word there. Um, and it, the Bible is therefore God's word as surely as if he was speaking it audibly. As surely as if God himself manifested himself in this room and spoke to us, it's the scriptures he'd be speaking. Can you see what I mean? The Bible is God's word as clearly as if he was speaking it audibly to us now. The only difference is that he spoke to men in the past and they wrote it down. That's the only difference. It is God's word as, as literally as if he was speaking it to us. The Bible is, in a literal sense, the word of God. Now, if you flick back to 2 Peter and uh, see something here, an allusion to the New Testament here, following on from the Old Testament and completing it, uh, 2 Peter, and if you find chapter 1, and um, I think we'll start reading from... <coughs> from verse 12. And Peter says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to arouse you by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And I will see to it that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter busily writing it all down so that they'd be able to. Now, back to this verse we saw earlier. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, it's interesting, you get the modern theologians today, the bishops of Durham, don't you? And they say, well, I mean, the Bible, you know, there's mythology in it. And what you've got to do is, the phrase they use is demythologize it. So the miracles, for instance, that's myth. You have to extract the supernatural and try and just get the meaning of it. Now, there are two problems. One, if you do demythologize the Bible, you're left with nothing. What you're left with is so unimportant and daft that it's a crazy process. But the point is, it's all very well people today saying, well, I mean, you know, sort of like these you know, Peter and Paul and the biblical writers, they were simply expressing things in the way that people would have done all that time ago, all supernatural, and it's mythology. Now what's interesting is that the writers specifically disclaim that. They go to great lengths to point out that we are writing about what we saw with our own eyes. You know, I mean, all this stuff about, you know, well, we thought Jesus was really important. So after he died, when we wrote the Gospels, we kind of chucked miracles in because we thought that would kind of make Jesus seem even more important because that's what the biblical critics say that they did. But here we can see them saying that's not what we did at all. We're telling you what we literally saw. Um, you know, so it's no use trying to, you know, go down this area that they were simply expressing themselves how men would have done 2,000 years ago. They specifically said they weren't putting myths in, and therefore what they said is either true or they are rabid liars, in which case there's no value in the Bible at all. Then he says, For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, he, here he's saying about what happened at the Transfiguration. 
And Peter was saying, I was there. What I'm telling you is what I saw with my own eyes and heard, with my own ears. And then he goes on to say, and we have the prophetic word made more sure. I.e., because what he's saying there is that we know all the things that the Old Testament prophesied about Messiah. And he said this prophetic word has been made even more sure now because we saw it fulfilled in front of our own eyes. That's what he's saying. And then he says, you will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man. And he's talking here now about the Old Testament and the scriptures that he and others were writing at the time. Because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And here, when he says that the scriptures came about because men were moved by the Holy Spirit. This word moved is feru, and it means to bear or to carry along. So if you gave a child a piggyback, you're carrying that child along. That is what this word means. And uh, obviously the individual writers, uh, their own characters came through, their backgrounds, uh, their historical and cultural settings were all brought to bear on what they wrote. But the point is that through it all, it was the Holy Spirit carrying them along so that they wrote exactly and fully what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. So therefore, we can see a twofold ministry of the Holy Spirit in this area. Firstly, he himself carried people along, as it were, in order to get the scriptures written, be they Old Testament scriptures or the New Testament scriptures. So firstly, the Holy Spirit carried the writers along to ensure that they wrote God's word as God wanted. And then secondly, he enables true and diligent searchers of those scriptures to understand and apprehend the truth that is contained in them. So we see the Holy Spirit is the writer of scripture and he is also the one who will explain what it means to you. Now what could be more logical than that? If you want to understand a book, if you think you're having trouble understanding a book, get to the author, he'll explain it. And that is exactly the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He wrote the Bible and he is the anointing within us who will explain it. Now then, back to 2 Timothy and notice that Paul said all scripture is inspired by God. And, uh, and of course he's specifically thinking here of the Old Testament. And uh, you know, Timothy had been brought up on the Old Testament and the Old Testament equally as the New Testament, which was then being written by the likes of Paul, Peter, John, etc, etc. The Old Testament was equally the inspiration of God. It was literally equally God speaking. So therefore what we've got is that the Bible in its entirety is God's word and only in its entirety. Um, every part of the Bible therefore has got to be held together in balance. None of it must be ignored. 
and none of it must be disagreed with. To disagree with the Word of God is to disagree with God. If you're sitting, talking, you know, I mean, say we're having a debate about is Cornwall nicer than Wales, alright? And, uh, you know, and I, I'm saying Cornwall's nicer than Wales, and you're saying Wales is nicer than Cornwall, alright? Now, you're disagreeing with what I say, aren't you? You're disagreeing with my words, which in that instance is fair enough, it's a matter of opinion, isn't it? But the point is, to say that you're disagreeing with my words is only another way of saying you're disagreeing with me. Do you see the point? And to disagree with God's word is to disagree with God, and there is no way around it at all. Anything that we decide to chop out of the Bible and ignore, we're in direct confrontation with God. Uh, I mean, this goes on all over the place, doesn't it? Now, there's so many things in the Bible that Christians don't like today, so they rationalise them away, don't they? It's ridiculous. Oh, you know, we've got to make sure that we never do that. You know, we've got to understand the Scriptures and obey it. Right, so Paul has said that all Scripture is literally God's, God's Word, okay, and he says it is profitable. It is profitable. Now, uh, this word profitable is ophelimos, and it means useful, or it means of assistance. So, an ophelimos might be a personal assistant, alright? Now then, if you're trying to do a job that's a two-man job, and there are some jobs where two people have to do them, you're doing it and you've got an assistant. Now, if you try to do a two-man job on your own, and don't use the help of your assistant, then that job is not going to get done properly. And so it is with following the Lord. We need various assistants if we are going to be helped in following the Lord. I mean, we need prayer, we need fellowship, alright. Uh, but here, we are seeing that one of our main assistants in our Christian life is the Bible. It's as simple as that. The Bible is, the main, is one of the main assistants to our discipleship. And without the Bible, or with the Bible, but only in some very minor role that you don't take much notice of, without that you are absolutely up a gum tree. The Bible is paramount in order for us to understand what God wants us to understand. And it's no use coming out with the rubbish that many Christians today come out with. Um, you know, sort of like, you know, this thing that, well, I mean, you know, the Holy Spirit is leading me, that's enough. I mean, that is rubbish. I mean, yeah, I sincerely hope the Holy Spirit is leading us, but the point is, the Holy Spirit leads predominantly through a knowledge of the Bible. And the ironic thing is that it's only an ever-growing knowledge of the Bible that is going to enable us to know whether any particular being led, oh, the Spirit's leading me. It's only by getting to know the Bible that any particular being led can be judged whether to be indeed the Holy Spirit or merely our own whims, or even worse, a demon, a demon deceiving us. Go back to John's Gospel, and we're going to look again at the verses from John 14 and 16 we looked at earlier, and uh, just to see them now in a slightly different light. Uh, because these are the verses, the, well, the Spirit's leading me, that's enough, brigade, turn to these verses. So let's, let's actually have a look at them. And it, first of all, it was John 14 and verse 25. 
And Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And, uh, you know, so they say, look, there you are, I'm, I'm relying on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to teach me, never mind about getting too deep into the Bible, I'm, I'm depending on the Holy Spirit. Uh, now go over to chapter 16, and we'll read from verse 12 again. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so they say, well, look, you know, the Holy Spirit, he's going to lead us into all truth. You know, what do we need the Bible for? You know, sort of like Bible teaching. We're trusting the Holy Spirit. But the point is, can you see that when Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, about things that he hadn't spoken to them yet, but that he, you know, but the Holy Spirit was going to show them. He's saying, firstly, that the Holy Spirit will enable them to remember everything he said up to that point. And he's also told them, there are other things that I need to tell you, but not yet. The Holy Spirit will tell them to you later. Now, can you see, this is the promise of Jesus to the disciples of enabling them and others to write the New Testament. This, all the truth that the Holy Spirit was going to lead them into, they committed to writing. And it's called the New Testament. So, the point is, here in these verses, we don't have some kind of teaching that you can, you know, just ignore the Bible and trundle along as the Spirit leads. Quite the contrary. This was the promise of Jesus to the disciples that they were going to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. And the point is that now we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament, to that extent, God has nothing left to say. When it comes to teaching, when it comes to how God wants us to live, okay, when it comes to who you marry, you're going to need to have revelational guidance. But on doctrine, on teaching, on how we order our lives, God has nothing more to say. He has said it all, and it is all in the Bible. And in, if you just go over into John 17, uh, just look at something that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he simply said this, he's praying to his Father for the disciples and for us, and he, he prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And what is, that was John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them, i.e., bring them into deliverance from the power of sin, okay, sanctification, by the truth. Your word is truth. So, God's truth is his word. And our ongoing Christian maturity can only be through the Bible. Yes, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but the point is, Try and have the ministry of the Holy Spirit without the Word of God, and you put yourself in a situation that the Holy Spirit himself doesn't allow you to be in, because he has written a book for us that tells us we mustn't be in that situation. All right. So, um, therefore, we can see that the Bible is profitable. It's ophelimos. It is our assistance in our Christian life. 
And, uh, and we're going to see that Paul says that the Bible's usefulness in this task that it has is fourfold. So the Bible is profitable or useful in this regard for four things. And the four things are teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And we'll take each one separately. First of all, he said that all scripture is profitable for teaching. Now, in the Greek and in the New Testament, there are two words which are used for teaching, all right? One is didache, and the other is didascalia. Now, here, it's not didache, it's didascalia. And although both words can be translated as teaching, there's a subtle but important difference of meaning between them. All right. Now, firstly, didache. Didache stresses, in regards to teaching, the authority by which a teaching is derived and the content of the teaching. Uh, it is, if you like, the theory. It's the content of the teaching itself. That is didache. That isn't the word Paul uses here. The word Paul uses is didascalia. And here, it represents not the mere theory and content of the teaching, but it stresses the active putting into practice of the content of the teaching. The emphasis is not on what you understand. The emphasis, it takes it for granted that you understand, the emphasis is on what you do. That's the important thing here. So not merely theory, when Paul talks here about teaching, he's not talking about the theory, the, the content of the teaching, he's talking about that content being put into practice. That is the push here. And indeed, in James 1.22, don't actually turn to it, James writes, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Uh, to hear God's word and not do it, I mean, you know, that is to deceive oneself. And that biblically, you know, because, I mean, it's, well, you know, Christians today aren't too bothered about being sound of doctrine, but believe me, there was a time when that was important to Christians. But biblically, a Christian could only claim to be sound of doctrine if he was actually living the teaching of the Bible out. Can you see? Uh, merely receiving it and believing it is not biblically to be sound of doctrine. Can you see the difference? Because you can believe and understand and agree with everything in the Bible and not do it. And, and that is, you know, completely the wrong idea. I mean, it's like, for instance, an example. Now, as a Bible teacher, whether tonight or any other night when I teach, I have no say whatsoever as to whether what I teach is mere didache or the desired didascalia. You see, that is entirely up to you. There's nothing I can do about that. Now, I can decide for myself, as I prepare the teaching and receive it for myself, I can decide what it's going to be in my life. Is it going to be mere theory, didache, or is it going to be practice, didascalia? But as a Bible teacher, when it comes to anyone else, I can have no say in that whatsoever. It is up to the hearers whether they're going to respond and do it, which is what the Bible says should happen, or whether they're just going to, you know, sort of like, oh, well, you know, yeah, that was really good study, I really agreed with that, oh, that really did help me, yes, I understand things that I didn't understand, and leave it there, didache, well, that's, that's, that's a flop. That is no good at all. It's only when we change how we live 
to match the teaching we've received. And that's down to each one of us. Uh, as I say, one who teaches can have no say in how his audience receives it. Or to put it another way, I, you know, sort of a cook, a chef can dish you up a lovely meal. Uh, it's up to you whether you're going to sit there and look at it and say how nice it is and smell it, or whether you're going to eat it. That, that decision is purely up to the people whom the meal is put in front of. And it's by this and this alone that we grow in the Lord or remain mere theoreticians. And the problem with Christianity is that there are so many people, they're genuine Christians, they're born again, but they are mere theoreticians. The Bible is of interest, they want to understand it, and they do understand it, but the problem is they don't get around by, you know, to actually living by it. So, the Bible there gives us teaching. And we have here one of the positive aspects of the Bible. Positive in that it gives us instructions for day-to-day -day life. It is a blueprint for our lives. It is God's blueprint for how we build our lives. It is the manual for the human being. You can get a man, I saw uh, Andy reading his manual for his full Capri the other day, and you get a manual for Harley Davidson, you can get a manual for anything, and you can get a manual for human beings, and it's called the Bible. And the important thing about a manual is that it's written by the people who make the object. Well, God made us, and he's written a manual for human living, and it's called the Bible. And it is there to be submitted to, pure and simple. I mean, Andy's got something wrong with his car. He wants it fixed, so he read the manual. Because he wants to do what the manual says. And it's exactly the same with the Bible. The Bible is there for us to submit to. It is positive, it is practical, and it is also completely authoritarian in regards to many, many things. There are a million things where God doesn't say, I leave it up to your good judgment. <laughs> we don't have good judgment. God tells us, black and white, how it's got to be. And it is for us to submit to full stop. It is the teaching of the Bible is the will of God for our lives. It tells us how to live in exactly the same way that the architect's blueprint tells a builder how to put the building up. And uh, how far would a builder get if he um, only ever got around to studying the blueprint? Not much of a builder. He's got to then actually put the building up. He's got to actually do what the blueprint lays out in theory. And that is didascalia, that is what Paul is talking about here, and it's the way it must be for us. Obedience to what we do understand of what the Bible teaches. Uh, John 14 verse 15, Jesus said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And it really is as simple as that. But before you can keep the commandments of Jesus, you've got to know what they are. And you find out by reading the Bible, because that's what the Bible is, the commandments of Jesus as the living God. Right, so that's the first thing. It's for teaching, and that's positive. Secondly, it's for reproof. Now, if teaching Didascalia is the positive side, the how-to side, uh, then here we've got the negative. This is the how not to live.
And uh, the actual word here for reproof is elegmos. And elegmos means, quite simply, to tell off. It means to convict of wrong. It means to censure. That's what it means. Now, the kingdom of God today is being flooded with a completely wrong idea. I've been using the words positive and negative. And uh, I'm going to maintain now that the Bible has a negative side. And yet today, the idea is abroad in the Christian church that positive is good and negative is bad. And you get this teaching that you should only ever be positive. God, they say, is always positive, all right. And uh, today, positive thinking is not merely a phrase. It is actually now a doctrine that is held very dear by a lot of very deceived people of God. Positive thinking is in the church, and it looks like it's here to stay. This idea that positive is by definition good, negative is by definition bad. Therefore, a Christian must always be positive. Now, think about it, because I want to show you that that very idea is absolute nonsense. Let me ask you a question. How can you think positively about child abuse? How can you be positive about fornication? How can you be positive about murder? How can you be positive about sin? Now, can you see that therefore, when people make the statement that positive is good and negative is bad, that is an incomplete statement and therefore it's absolute nonsense. You see, positive and negative can only be right or wrong depending on what they're in regards to. Can you see what I mean? I mean, for instance, it is right to be positive um, about, you know, sort of someone's become a Christian. We're positive about that. That's brilliant. Someone's been born again. But it is right to be negative about sin. Do you see the idea? So positive and negative are completely neutral. They can only make any sense at all in regards to what, you know, you're thinking of. And, um, I mean, certainly you could be negative in a situation when the biblical approach would be a positive one. But vice versa. You can end up being positive in a situation when the biblical approach would be a negative one. But as I say, the, the, the false teaching is abroad today where negative, say many, many Christians, negative is in itself bad. Never say anything negative. And this is one of the reasons they say you must never criticise, you must never judge. That's being negative. Your church is into false teaching. You mustn't say that. That's being negative. You're sleeping with your girlfriend. That, that's negative. You mustn't judge. Can you see what I mean? And that is kind of, you know, it's a kind of, you know, the idea being to, to you know, uh, silence people uh, who speak out in regards to what the Bible says. But the point is that in regards to this saying that, you know, to be positive is good and negative is bad, it's... It's, it's a teaching that doesn't even pass the test of common sense, let alone the teaching of the Bible. As I say, the idea, 
you must never be negative. Well, how can you be positive when you're confronted with child abuse? Can you see what I mean? It's, it's an absolutely daft idea. And of course, it's a ploy to try and get out of conviction of sin. All this positive thinking, that's what it's about. It's a kind of a, a, a let sleeping dogs lie attitude. Because if you let sleeping dogs lie, then hopefully they'll let you lie as well. Can you see? They'll just leave you alone. And it's kind of the way it works out in principle is this. It's a teaching that says, I will only ever tell you that you're wonderful. And of course, you're only going to tell me that I'm wonderful, aren't you? Can you see? It is simply um, a, a rather clumsy and stupid attempt to ease correction, to ease reproof out of the Christian life. Well, I'm afraid the Bible, therefore, is very negative. And it's good to know, because it is true, that <laughs> Jesus is extremely negative about an awful lot of things. He really is. You know, I mean, so just, just read through the Gospels, for instance, him tirading against the Pharisees. You know, there weren't many names that he didn't call them. Uh, he was very negative about it. He was very negative about the traditions in Israel. He was very negative about sin. He was negative about loads and loads of things. And the Bible tells us all the sorts of things that Jesus is negative about. And he is very negative about our sin. Very negative. He's not in the slightest bit positive about our sin. He is negative. You sin, and God's going to tell you off. He's not going to say, oh, there, 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 let's be positive. He's saying, repent, confess. It's as simple as that. God is negative. And, uh, and the point is that as we get to know and understand God's word more and more, you see, all the time it's judging where we're wrong in our lives. Um, it's judging, it's pointing a finger, it's showing us where there's sin in us against God and against our fellow man, and the Bible then instructs us to repent and to put the sin right. Um, now, obviously, uh, you know, I mean, all the marvellous positive things in the Bible about what the Lord has done for us and what he's going to do, all that, all the positive bits, I mean, they're there and they're marvellous, but here's the point. It, they're not much help unless we can enter into all those positive, marvellous things, are they? Knowing that they're there is not a help unless we know also how to enter into all those positive, marvellous things, our new life in Jesus, being raised up into heavenly places, you know, authority over Satan, blah, blah, blah. And you see, the point is, the way in to all the marvellous things that God has done for us, the way in is always repentance and confession through faith in Jesus. That is always the way in. So therefore, Christians who have a blind eye to anything negative, it's their swear word, all negative, no, we don't say that, um, you know, sort of, and for them negative is things like being told off and being convicted of sin through the Bible. That's all negative, is critical, you don't say it. Well, that, that they, are be, they are totally deceiving themselves. It is pure self-delusion. And the truth is that it's often, at any one moment, what we need most from the Lord is the negative. There are many, many moments when it's the negative that I need most. It's not God's, yes, everything's okay. It's God's, no, put that right. That's the negative. And there are times when that is just what we need. Now, obviously, it is true that the negative is only there to bring us through to the positive. God convicts me of sin so that I can repent and he forgives me, yeah. But the point is, to only want the positive is like someone who desperately wants to lose weight 
without actually cutting down on what they eat. You see, it's a logical absurdity. They want the positive, lose weight, but the negative, oh no, I'm not going to cut down on food. Can you see? It's just absolutely crazy. And uh, it is certainly true in following the Lord, no pain, no gain. And that's because the Bible tells us off. It's as simple as that. Go to 2 Timothy and uh, chapter 2, just a couple of chapters before the one we're homing in on. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the Lord and in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's Timothy raising up potential elders, all right? Take your share of suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier on service gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to satisfy the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. My goodness, there's the dirty word, rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will grant you understanding in everything. Now, you know, I mean, I have at times been, and not that long ago, you know, sort of castigated by Christians who insist that the Christian life isn't rules. Well, I mean, what a stupid thing to say. There are no rules. They say, we're not under law, we're under grace. But of course we're under grace. To be under law is to be trying to earn your own salvation because you think you're righteous. We're not under law, we're under grace. But you mustn't think that grace is total freedom. Oh, we're under grace, I can do what I like. Paul says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? By no means. And therefore, as Christians under grace in the freedom of the Lord, we only come into that freedom by following the rules. And if we don't live our Christian life according to the rules, we're going to get nowhere. So the point is, Paul, he starts off by saying to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, because Timothy wasn't under law, he was under grace, just like us. So here's Paul saying, be strong in that grace. And how does he tell Timothy to do it? He says, obey the rules. Is he? Obey the rules and you'll grow in grace. Grace is not the opposite of rules at all. Grace is the opposite of law. It's completely different. So there are rules in the Christian life, like it or not. Grace does not exclude discipline. It does not exclude rules. It does not exclude hard work at following the Lord. And it doesn't exclude conviction of sin. Quite the contrary. Right, okay, we've done now the positive and the negative. We've done how to live, uh, didascalia, teaching, and how not to live, um, reproof, elegmos. Uh, we've, we've covered the getting it right in the Lord, and we've covered the being told off when we're wrong. So therefore, given that the next one is correction, where does that come in? I mean, isn't correction the same as reproof? If we've done reproof, why is correction there? Well, the answer is no, it's not the same as reproof, all right. Correction, the actual Greek word here is apanorthusis. And uh, it comes from the verb, or thuo, which is the verb to make straight, all right? Now, reproof, elegmos, is very much a moral thing, i.e., you tell lies, and the Bible tells you it's a sin, and tells you to repent, so you stop. Uh, or you're being immoral, the Bible tells you it's a sin, and it stops. It's very much a moral thing. Uh, that's elegmos, that's reproof. But this could equally be a nautical term. Its usage would be, you know, quite... Uh, you know, sort of like Greek sailors going out, this was a word that they'd have used. And it refers to a course correction. 
not moral correction, but a correction of a course. I mean, the realisation that your direction has gone off, I mean, you're sailing along, and it's the realisation that your direction has gone off, and that it needs to be realigned with the charts for the voyage. I mean, it's like, for instance, you set sail from Plymouth to the Bahamas, and who could blame you? But you realise that something's gone wrong when you spot icebergs just west of Reykjavik in Iceland. You see? A course correction is badly needed. That's what this word means, to make straight. It's the idea a ship sails by straight lines. It sets a course. All the time it's readjusting its course, but it sails according to a straight line. All right. And, uh, but you see, the very subtle thing is that uh, when you're a sailor and on a ship or a boat or something like that, the point is that to go off course just a couple of degrees, which is unnoticeable at the time, absolutely unnoticeable, but it's to really end up totally off course the more the journey proceeds. Can you see? So you might set out to sea and you've got your course, but as you leave the harbour you're one degree off. Well, it's hardly noticeable, is it? But if there's no course correction, you're going to end up in a totally different place than where you thought you were actually going to, all right? And so, therefore, that is why, that you know, whether it's an aeroplane or a ship or something, the navigator really does have a 24-hour job because he is always reassessing the course and making the corrections. Very few journeys are done in complete straight lines, very few. It was interesting, uh, one time when we went across to France on the Sea Cat, if you go up the front, you can uh, actually see in the cabin where they're working it all. And of course they're computer controlled. I mean, the bloke only uses manual uh, when, you know, he actually docks. But they've got the sonar there, and you can actually see on this sonar the, the straight line from Calais to, uh, from Dover to Calais. And that straight line is plotted there on the sonar or whatever it's called. And then there's another line, which is the actual progress of the sea cat itself. And it's a line that wiggles. It wiggles, because it goes slightly off course, and then the computer corrects it and brings it back to the straight line. Then it goes a bit over that side, so the computer corrects it and brings it back. Can you see? That's what we're talking about here in regards to uh, correction. And you see, the word of God is the straight or it's that line on the CCAT sonar where it should be going. The Word of God is the straight which, as we measure the ongoing journey of our discipleship against it, it shows up any bent of our going off course. You see the idea? And this is why constantly getting in the Word of God is so important. So that all the time the Word of God can be re-correcting our, excuse me, our course. And, um, you know, and this can happen time and time again. I mean, I couldn't begin to tell you how many times I've been put back on course by God through the Bible. Um, you know, having gone off course a bit. I mean, for instance, one example, I give this because it's it sort of like so horrifically, <laughs> you know, sort of like clear in my mind. I'll never forget it. But um, after a few years of, of the Lord really showing me my sin and really bringing me into real conviction of sin and death to self, which was absolutely right, and, you know, sort of seeing what it meant to have died with Jesus on the cross. I mean, horrific, but absolutely wonderful. I praise God that he did that in me, because the revelation that I got from it changed me completely. And all that was absolutely right. But because there was so much emphasis, you know, the Holy Spirit convicting me and showing me my nothingness, blah, 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 the dark night of the soul, as some of the old Christian mystics used to call it, 
that what happened was I lost sight of God's grace and forgiveness for me. It got so intense and so black that I, I lost sight of grace. I, I, I lost sight and, and Satan deceived me. I actually believed that I'd sinned myself out of salvation. That was how bad that deception got. I had gone badly off course and I ended up in utter despair, really deceived by Satan. But it was getting back to the Word of God which is full of not just conviction of sin, but God's grace and forgiveness as well, it brought me back on course again. Can you see? And there are a thousand things in our lives, you know, where we go off course and the Word of God brings us back online. I mean, it's like, for instance, getting a bit obsessed with the gifts of the Spirit will be an example here. Happens to a lot of Christians. They get baptised with the Spirit, they read earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, absolutely fantastic. And so they're earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts. Well, I mean, you know, a few months later, this earnestly desire has turned into be greatly obsessed by. You see what I mean? And so the word of God needs to come in and, you know, hey, you know, you can speak in tongues and if you haven't got love, it's a clanging gong. And this offends you. How dare you say something wrong, you know, rotten about the gifts of the spirit? Oh, oh, the Bible says it. Oh, and you start to get the message. Can you see what I mean? And, uh, you know, so... Um, homing in on certain truths in the Bible to the exclusion of other truths, creating imbalances. That, that's a danger as well. You can discover a fresh strain of truth in the Bible that you've never seen before. And uh, I'll take an example. One bloke I remember talking to, and uh, you know, sort of like he was really beginning to understand seeing the scriptures, this thing about sharing the sufferings of Jesus and becoming you know, conformable to him in his death, and he was really getting, you know, sort of his teeth stuck into this. It was a new line of truth that he was seeing. It was absolutely right and good. And that led him eventually to the point to believe that in a church, eldership is only needed to bring people to that point. Once people have come to that point of seeing their oneness with Jesus in his death, then they're so sanctified and being so led by the Spirit, they don't need eldership anymore. And of course the Bible went out the window as well. You see? So, a truth that is there, but it ends up completely out of context, and other truths in the Bible are pushed to one side. And there, again, you need the Bible to kind of, you know, bring us back onto course. We can so easily be always creating imbalances. In fact, I would say that every time we do see something new in the Bible, we immediately create an imbalance, because we're sinners, can you see? Even the sea cat, it doesn't get across in a straight line, it's always zigzag. But the point is, it doesn't matter if you zig, as long as the Bible gets you zagging fairly quickly afterwards. And then, because you're going to zag too far the other way, you've got to get another zigging. Do you see? So, that's what I'm meaning. Course correction. It's not so much here that we're dealing with moral sin. We're dealing here with our incapacity, even with the Holy Spirit to guide us, to fully understand the Bible. We're always bringing our own prejudices and our own little, you know, things to bear on it. And uh, another example would be, I mean, some Christians, they, you know, they get the revelation of serving their brothers and sisters, foot washing. And it's a good revelation to get. It's absolutely right and proper. And doing good works in the world. I mean, we looked at this in the Church Life series, didn't we? You know, serving our brothers and sisters and doing good works in the world. Now, some Christians, they see that in the Bible. And their hearts light up to it, which is brilliant that it does. But then what happens, they, they get so into it, it so consumes them that they forget, for instance, all about verbal evangelism. No, don't witness to them, just love them and serve them. Do their shopping, but don't tell them about Jesus. 
you know, just, and, and it merely turns into the social gospel. Again, an imbalance has come in, or vice versa. Some Christians are so into evangelism, verbal witnessing, which is great, they get the, and it's great, we've got to go out there and tell people, they're so into that, they would not dream of giving anyone practical help. You know, go over to someone lying in the road. What? You need an ambulance? Sorry, mate. Someone over there I've got a witness to. <laughs> you know, you see, they're, they're nothing practical. So that doing good works in the world goes out the window and serving their brothers and sisters because the whole time they're out evangelising. You see what I mean? And again, you've got an imbalance and it always needs to be being corrected uh, by the Word of God. Um, I mean, for instance, uh, you know, sort of someone could really get the revelation of fellowship, being stuck in at a fellowship, really committed, part of the body, and it lights up their whole lives and they love it. And so they really get stuck into fellowship. And they get so stuck in that, 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 that their wife and their children and their home and their family life is getting neglected. They're never home because they're so stuck into the fellowship. And they're neglecting family duties. Can you see? An incredible imbalance there. To be so stuck into a fellowship that you're neglecting your family at home, the Bible says that is, you know, that is totally wrong. Family comes first. So, of course, correction is needed. We have it vice versa. You have a Christian who, say, you know, gets married or, you know, sort of gets a revelation about Christian family life, which is a wonderful thing. And they get so stuck into that family life, you never see them again at the fellowship. And yet the Bible says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. And you've got another imbalance, and it can be an infinite number of variations on, on that theme. And really, this correction are the little errors of judgment that eventually, if, un if uncorrected, become massive errors of belief and behaviour. So the sooner the course is corrected by the Bible, the better. But of course, you can only be corrected by the Bible if you're getting to know the Bible. Uh, you, you put spiritual fads in here as well. You know, like you can go and hear the latest teaching. And, uh, you know, and it sounds so right and so biblical at the time. It, hey, er, you know, everyone's into it. It's very often at times like that that um, error is, is often just around the corner. You know, so again, this balance, this all the time being brought back um, on, on course. Left to ourselves, we will go off course again and again and again, all right? But with the Bible, we can at least know that we're going to get brought back onto course, that we're going to get back on the rails sooner than if we didn't have the Bible. In fact, if we didn't have the Bible, you'd never get back on the rails because you wouldn't even know you're off the rails because it would only be the Bible that's telling you you're off the rails. Can you see? I mean, you know, the, these Christians who just go, by, well, the Lord's leading me. I mean, can you see how ridiculous it is? The Lord's leading me. How do you know the Lord's leading you? Test it against the Bible. If it's biblical, the Lord's leading you. If it isn't, it's not. It's as simple as that. And the Bible is our security against this going off the rails too badly and all the fads and the imbalances and stuff like that. Right, okay, now the, the uh, finally, he, Paul says that the Bible is useful for training in righteousness. Now, um, this word training is paideia. And uh, it's, it's in, in the Greek, it's the training of a child. It's child training, bringing up a child. That's what the word means. And, uh, and it refers to the, the ongoing character development that is necessary in a child in order to be brought up properly. Uh, it's kind of the instruction that's necessary for the overall moral development of the child. It's completely comprehensive. You know, your concern is not just with the child's behaviour, morally, 
you know, does it, you know, does my child lie? Do they steal? Are they rebellious against authority? It's not merely those things. It is those things, but it's wider than that. It's, is my child learning to relate to other children well? You know, uh, is my child learning properly at school? Can you see, it's the whole, is he polite? Is he able to relate socially? It's the, you know, the whole caboodle. Not just the teaching of right or wrong, um, and, and not just the implanting of knowledge for wise decision-making in the future, but it's the loving and firm discipline that is going to develop the child's character in totality so that that child grows up to be, so to speak, a, a, an upright, you know, citizen, all right? And, uh, and, of course, the point is that as we respond to the Word of God, progressively understanding, and by the Holy Spirit, if we put our backs into it, we will, understanding and obeying it, then what we will find is that through that, the very life of Jesus and the very character of Jesus himself will be brought out in us. When you bring out a child, what you're trying to do is you're trying to develop its character in the very best possible way. Now, in regards to us, what the Word of God does is that it assists us in having the character of Jesus developed and brought out in us. Do you see what I mean? The more we're led into the truth of what the Bible says, sanctify them by thy truth, the more we're led into that, the more we will find self being denied and laid aside and put to death, and Jesus living through us the character of Jesus being formed in us more and more and more. And then finally, Paul goes on to say that the man of God, and this is the end, this is what it's all for, he says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, he talks about being complete, being equipped. We're talking maturity here, aren't we? And that's the whole point of it. The Word of God in our lives will bring us to maturity, and without the Word of God, you will never get there, because you will never get beyond what the Bible calls being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, you see. And, uh, and this, this complete equipped here, the Greek is exartizo, and it means fully fitted out, like a kitchen, um, and, and prepared, um, or like fully furnished, like a house. I mean, it's like you can buy these Barrett's and Wimpy houses today, can't you? And they're not shells. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like when we moved Gary and Eve the other day, it was a shell. You just go into this empty shell. But with a Barrett's or a Wimpy home, everything is in there. The cupboards, the curtains, the carpets, the, the washing machine, the cooker, you name it, it's all in there. It is fully furnished and livable in. Now that is what this word means, complete, equipped. Exartizo, and it comes from artos, which is the Greek word for a joint, and it means literally properly jointed together. Now think about it, if a house is not properly jointed together, it's not livable in, because it's going to fall down. And what Paul is getting at here is, what is our purpose now that we're born again? Well, as the temple of God, our purpose is to be one in whom Jesus lives. And that house in which Jesus lives, my body and my life, needs to be livable in for him. It needs to be a kind of a home. I mean, one thing about your home, if you can't do what you like in your own home, where can you do it? Now then, can Jesus do what he likes in you? Can Jesus do what he likes in me? 
because we're his home. Therefore, he ought to be able to do what he likes in us, is he? And so, therefore, this complete and equipped, talking about a life that is being fully furnished, so that more and more, we, our lives, are compatible with the life of Jesus, Jesus actually living inside of us. And so it's a progressive thing, like a house being fully furnished. I mean, over the next maybe months, even years, Gary and Eve are going to keep fully kitting out their new house. It's a progressive thing, and it's the same in our lives. But the, 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 the job of the Word of God is to get us fitted out, livable in, fully prepared for whatever it may be that the Lord wants to do through us. Bearing that in mind, go to... Um, Go to Ephesians chapter 4. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 4. Then we'll see a very similar uh, passage from Paul. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read from verse 11. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, can you see that? Why are there specific ministries in the church and why is there leadership? It's there to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Is it? It's to prepare all of us in this active role in building up the church until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied. Remember that exartizer, it means properly jointed together. When each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. And it's kind of like a picture, I mean, say you've got a skeleton on the floor and it's exploded, you know, say in a medical school, and there's all these bones lying everywhere around, you've got to fit it together again. You've got to build up that skeleton. That is exactly what the Lord is doing in our life. He's building up his life in our life, individually, but more than that, he's fitting us together, he's jointing us together corporately, and building us up as a church, which is part of the wider, universal church of Jesus throughout time, and, uh, you know, throughout the whole world. And so, there you have it, this being prepared, being fully equipped. And, uh, you know, just back into the, the 2 Timothy bit, just to notice his particular emphasis there. He says that the man of God may be complete and equipped uh, for every good work. Work. Now then, the great danger is that we take the K off the end of work and we merely put a D in it. It's not for every good word. It's for every good work. It's not for talk. It's for action. That's the test. That's the whole point of it. Not merely believing and accepting and agreeing with the content of the Bible, but letting it change us so that we're actually living by it. Uh, go over, uh, go back into, um, sorry, yeah, 
let's let's read the next verses in chapter 4. We've read to the end of chapter 3. This is 2 Timothy again. Now we'll read the, the first four verses in chapter 4. So this is carrying on. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be urgent in season and out of season. Convince rebuke and exhort, be unfailing in patience and in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Now that is what will happen to you, and that is what will happen to me, by definition, if we do not live under the complete authority of the Word of God. The moment that we kind of go soft on the Word of God, our ears are itching. And the moment we give in to that, we are open to deception, and that deception will come along, believe you me, without fail. And so the emphasis here, again, from Paul to Timothy, as the leader of the church. He said it's the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. The whole time, the Word of God, it is our judge. It is our lead. It is the means by which the Holy Spirit leads us closer and closer to Jesus. It's the means by which Jesus lives through us. It is the means by which Jesus glorifies his Father in heaven, and it's the means by which the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. It's the Word of God, the Word of God, and we dare not stray from it in any way at all. And we've got to make sure that we're not just believing it, but that we are living it as well. Go lastly back into 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, <clears throat> and find verse 6. This will be a very familiar verse to you, it's the verse that um, that I felt was, you know, sort of like the one to put on, uh, you know, as the tapes go out in the tape ministry on the, the covers to the tapes. This is the verse that is there. Let's just read it. Now this is Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthian church and get this and you've got it all. Get this and the potential is there to really go on in the Lord. He says, I have applied all this to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brethren, that you may learn by us to live according to Scripture. And there you have it. He doesn't say that you may learn by us to believe sound doctrine. He doesn't say that at all. He says that you may learn by us to live according to Scripture. And every day following the Lord, what is it? It's learning to live according to Scripture. Because Scripture is the manual that Jesus has given us. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. The Bible is his commandment. It's as simple as that. So that is our way for maturity. And uh, so therefore that answers the question, what is the Bible for? It is there to enable us to grow up as Christians. It is there to lead us into maturity. It is there to be our guide, enabling the life of Jesus more and more to be lived through us and our old sinful nature and self-life to be dealt with and crucified and put to death. So that is what the Bible is for.